0: Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from 1st Naz podcast. All right, let's turn our attention to the scriptures. I'm, uh, I'm struggling today. This week's been a wrestling match between me and the Word of God. I had this bright idea, let's work our way through Malachi, and I surveyed the congregation. No, all of you said that none of your pastors have ever done that. They're all smarter than me. I said that kind of half-joking last week. Now I realize, nope, it's just true. Um, this is tough. This is one of the toughest sermon series that I have ever tried to tackle. Uh, because of that, uh, I'm, being, I'm being tested, in, and I'm growing, but man... This is just hard, okay? It's hard working. I bet it's hard listening as well. We agreed that we would go before God and take this book, Malachi, and set it before us and view it as God when he dares to be the friend who says the hard things to us. We all say we want those friends. We say that we appreciate them. We say, ouch, when they do come to us, and we say thank you afterwards, once we've had a little while to heal up and maybe wise up a little bit, right? Well, there's been... A fair amount of ouch for me in reading Malachi. And this week, uh, I got to a section that, frankly, it would have been easier to just skip over. It's probably been skipped over a lot. You see, most of the time, what pastors do, preachers do, is they study the Scripture, and they're looking for messages from God's Word, truth from God's Word, that we see as, uh, as, as plainly taught, the plain meaning of Scripture, and we look for ways that that can apply to the lives of the average person who's trying to follow Jesus, you, the congregation, and we bring these truths as messages from God through preachers to the people. And that's what we do virtually every time that we're in the pulpit And the problem is, for me, this week, as I start Malachi chapter 2, is that that's not the way it's supposed to work today. Most of the time, it's truth from God's word, pastor brings message to the people, for the people to live out. This week, the message is to the preacher, and um, maybe all the retired preachers too, how's that? All of a sudden, this got harder to read. I mean, I'm one of you. I'm one of the people of God. And so I look at these messages that I, that I share with you from week to week, and I, too, am looking for ways that my life doesn't seem to match that, and I want, I want my life to become like the truth of God's Word. I want it to, to be a nice, neat overlay. And in, in that way, my life comes to reflect the glory of God and the goodness of God and the love of God to the people around me. This week, I read this passage and at first, I just wanted to cry. I just wanted to say, oh, Lord, how could you? I, uh, I then thought, oh, you know, Cliff, you just need to make this the stuff of your devotional life and go on to the stuff that, that can help the church family. And the longer that I wrestled with it, the more I realized that if I'm going to dare to stand before you on any given Sunday and say, here's what I think the word of God has to say to you about your life, that when he points a message at the preacher, I need to examine that and myself before you. And so I don't honestly know how this is going to go. I, I, I typically come up here with one little sticky note with a few ideas on it that represent an outline. This week, I ended up with a three-by-five card with too many notes on both sides and um, two full sheets of paper with notes on both sides, and I left those away uh, down in the office. I told Laura this morning, I have no idea what I'm going to preach today. I told the worship team, I have no idea what I'm going to preach today. And then I told the prayer team in my office minutes before I came up here, I have no idea what to preach today. Let's, let's see where God leads us. I've prepared, I've studied, and then here's this passage. So maybe what, I'm, maybe what I'm doing this morning is preaching to me, and you all just get to listen and I won't presume to tell you what you ought to do with that, okay? Let's work our way through Malachi chapter two. Laura, I'm gonna need my phone. That's got my uh, scriptures on it. I'm also gonna need some Kleenexes because I know me. Plus, I have a runny nose. All right, let's look at Malachi chapter 2, shall we? Would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's word? Somewhere, there is a preaching professor who's getting ready to give me an F. I already got my degree. I'm not worried about it. Lord, as we look at your word, help me. Amen. I'm reading from the New Living Translation in the Scriptures. Listen, you priests, this command is for you. Listen to me and make up your minds to honor my name, says the Lord of heaven's armies, or I will bring a terrible curse against you. I will curse even the blessings you receive. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you have not taken my warning to heart. I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from your festival sacrifices, and I will throw you on the manure pile. Then at last, you will know. It was I who sent you this warning so that my covenant with the Levites can continue, says the Lord of heaven's armies. The purpose of my covenant with the Levites was to bring life and peace, and that is what I gave them. This required reverence from them, and they greatly revered me and stood in awe of my name. They passed on to the people the truth of the instructions they received from me. They did not lie or cheat. They walked with me, living good and righteous lives, and they turned many from lives of sin. The words of a priest's lips should preserve knowledge of God. And people should go to him for instruction, for the priest is the messenger of the Lord of heaven's armies, that you priests have left God's paths. Your instructions have caused many to stumble into sin. You've corrupted the covenant I made with the Levites, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So I have made you despised and humiliated in the eyes of all the people, for you have not obeyed me but have shown favoritism in the way you carry out my instructions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think just what I have to do today is work my way down through it verse by verse and uh, tell you what I've learned and see how this applies to me and my brothers and sisters in pastoral ministry. Verse number one, Malachi starts with this, uh, this warning to the priests. And for those of you who've, who have pay attention to such things, you may want to put an asterisk in there and say, well, Cliff, you're off the hook because you're not a priest, you're a pastor. You know, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. And I know that within uh, church history, the, the development of titles and so forth, when the Protestant Reformation rolled around, uh, sometime later. The, the Protestant arm of the church said we need to in some way distinguish our leaders from those in the Roman Catholic Church because we see the duties as being significantly enough different that uh, we don't want to call them priest because at some level that idea of priest means somebody who stands between people and God, not as a barrier but as the one who represents the people to God and one who represents God to the people. But by the way that developed kind of in the, in the Western church uh, priest really did become kind of the only guy who was going to God. And, and the church let this misunderstanding develop so that people began to actually think that they couldn't go to God on their own and, and only the priest could go to God for them, so they'd go to the priest instead of going to God. I'm glad we tackled that. I'm glad that we, we got rid of, of that nonsense, of that misunderstanding, and have come to the place that we understand that every person on the planet has direct access to God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ. He, uh, when, when he died, the scriptures tell us, this veil in the temple in Jerusalem that, that was a symbol of the separation between God and people was torn right down the center And perfectly ruined and made irreparable as a forever symbol. That people get to go to God. People get to go to God. Celebrate that. People get to go to God. You don't have to come to me or to anybody else. And yet it is the case that we Protestant pastors also have some priestly duties. Pastor Bill and I got to do that earlier. We stand before the people as representatives of God and get to proclaim his grace to you. And then, through the laying on of hands, we get to administer God's grace. We do that in baptism. We do that in dedication. We're going to do that here in a few minutes as we, one more time, take things in our hands that symbolize God's goodness and say, here, for you. And then you and God get to connect. And so I think there's enough priest left in the pastorate, enough priest in the pastors, that I just have to take this passage seriously and understand it was meant for me too. And verse 1 begins as a warning to me and to anybody else who dares to do what I do. And I think that, that I, I thought anyway, that my life really was wholly dedicated to the honor of God. That is, that, that among the most important things, the most important thing in all that I do, pardon me, is making sure that God is seen as a glorious, loving, beautiful, holy being. And that nothing that I says detracts from that. That everything that we do from, from talking about morality to, to talking about justice to storytelling about how good God is, that all of it begin, all of it ends up pointing all of us, all of our attention, all of our affection in the same direction to this God who is revealed as love and light and goodness. And that by the time I get done speaking as imperfectly as I do it, by the time we get done singing as imperfectly as we do it, by the time we get done praying as imperfectly as we do it, that all of us are left with this heightened awareness and this heightened appreciation for who our God is. I thought my life was completely given over to that. But as I read this passage and I got down toward the bottom of it, I realized why there was a warning in verse number one. When you read down through that passage, it was probably a little shocking to you, some of the language that he used. It was for me too. We get down through it and we come to understand that Jesus, or I'm sorry, that God was talking to to the priests, the preachers, through a prophet, giving words of warning because somehow our focus had drifted Somehow, we had so come to fear the opinions of people that the fears of the opinions of people displaced a proper fear for the opinion of God. Now, at first, I wanted to say, no, that hasn't taken place in my life. I speak the truth when I stand up here. Nothing that's usually true. But this week, while I wrestled with this passage, I wrestled with two things. I found out that there's a person um, in our fellowship who is very, very angry with me. And um, you know there's two sides to every disagreement, right? That means that there's some credence in what the other person thinks. And I have to humble myself and say it's probably not 100% Cliff is right and 0% person X is wrong. It's not even a probably. It's just the truth. I found somebody was very upset with me to the the place that, you know, they expressed that uh, very strongly. And um, currently isn't responding to... uh, my attempts to reconcile the relationship, and then I found out that somebody was somebody else was upset with me, and uh, it doesn't it doesn't matter why, but I started worrying started worrying about conversations that they might be having, with some of you, and what, what the end result of that might, might become. And I was trying to read Malachi 2 and, and study so that I could preach, you know, to all of you about how you should follow what God says. And I couldn't get past the, you know, the worry and the and the fear. And so I stopped and I just said, Lord, I, for some reason I can't get past my emotions. I can't get past how I'm feeling as I study your word. And, and this burden on my heart is weighing me down. And I don't think I can, I can hear your Holy Spirit in this passage if, if you don't take away this ug in my heart. And he said to me, as plainly as I've ever heard him, you fear the opinions of men more than me. And that's why you continue to carry this burden. And I didn't want to hear that because I had read Malachi 2 already, and, and I saw two things. I saw one, its effect on people. Later on in the passage, he said that the people have fallen away from me because the priests don't fear me. I think, I think my fellow pastors in this world, I'll say in this country, and I owe the church of Jesus Christ an apology. I do think that within my lifetime anyway, we have so feared the opinions of men and women that we have tried to find ways to restate the message in ways that are pleasing to you so you'll sign up to hear them more. So you keep coming back. So that you'll think we're good preachers so that you'll think we really understand the Bible better than you, and you'll come to us. We kind, of, we kind of turned ourselves into priests of the wrong kind. And so as I look at the state of the church in America, I'm not very pleased with what the church looks like in our country right now. And... It isn't because of all of you. If Malachi is a message from God, it's because of us, the pastors, who have worried about what people think of us and what people uh, might hire us or fire us or be mad at us. And so we've tried to work our way around that. I didn't even know I was doing it. Don't worry, I'm not about to become a hammer in the pulpit. I don't think I have it in me to be a prophet. But I want to commit to you that I will preach the scriptures without flinching. And I will understand if you don't like it sometimes. Verse 2, he said, uh, the the problem is that the the priests, the, the pastors didn't have enough resolve. Man, I thought I was a resolve guy. I'm a distance runner. To be a distance runner, you don't have to be fast. You just have to be willing to keep on hurting. Right, Roberta? Right, Jeremy? Preparing for a marathon after ridiculous other physical activities. You don't have to be fast. You just have to be willing to put up with pain longer than the other people in the race, and you will outlast them. I thought that was resolve. It is. But in this passage, we are called upon to, we pastors, to have a, a very firm resolve that God will be honored if nobody else is. That what is said about him will be true, that he, we, he won't be uh, dumbed down or turned into something he's not to make him more palatable to people. And Malachi said the priests had lost their resolve. Pray for more strength for your pastor, okay? Because I think I'd already done it. Dwayne, you and I knelt at the same altar the night we were ordained. We resolved to do this with the help of God. I need to restate my resolve before the congregation today. Verse 3 is the worst it's the worst part of the Bible, okay? It's it's one of the five worst parts of the Bible. Um, one of these days I'll preach a sermon series on the worst parts of the Bible doesn't that one sound like fun? Whew. oh boy you won't be able to bring your kids to church I'll tell you that verse 3 I will punish he's talking to the priests here so you guys can relax I will punish your descendants and splatter your faces with the manure from the festival sacrifices and I'll throw you On the manure pile. You know, I thought about a really uh, neat way to uh, film a video of this whole thing. Go out to Dick Loon's corrals, and and it would have been wholly, it would have been funny, but it would have been wholly inappropriate and encouraged us all to miss the point that, uh, in the language of the people who raised me, they ain't nothing funny about that. I mean, when you read that passage, once you get past the seventh grader in you, he said manure. I mean, I mean, doesn't it shock you? Doesn't it seem like something that's beneath God? Doesn't it seem like something that's so horrible that God would never do it? I mean, he said, uh, hey, you priests, you're up there being all religious. You're gutting these sacrifices and taking care of the, the presentation like you were told to. And the way they were told to was, okay, you gotta, you got to slit the animal's throat. Sorry, graphic content warning, all that. you got to slit the animal's throat. you got to collect the blood. It's going to be used for something. And then you got to gut the animal. And when you're taking all of the gross parts out, they're to be taken not only outside the The uh, area where the sacrifice was made, they're supposed to be taken not only outside the the temple proper, they're supposed to be taken outside the city, and they're supposed to be burned up. You're taking them to a place that, uh, you know, in in a day before there were modern sanitation systems, there were just big piles of manure outside town. It seemed better than piling it inside town, right? The British were late in coming to this, but... uh, in the Middle East, they had uh, they piled it outside town. That place, the dung heap, the manure pile for the entire town, was the worst sign of human civilization. And this this part of the beast that had been sacrificed, the part that you don't you don't want to you want to make sure you don't cut that one part open or. That's to be taken outside of the city and, and thrown onto the dung heap and, and burned out there. And then the good parts that remain, the, the meat, it's supposed to be divided up. Some of it burned and given to God and, and the rest given to the priests to feed them and their families. But, you know, this was, uh, this was a mess. If you've never seen sacrifice, but you've seen hunting, it's a lot closer to that than we wanted it to be. These guys are in their robes. Guess what the robes smelled like at the end of the day? Guess what the hem of the robe was soaked in? Guess what the sleeves looked like? I've thrown shirts away after gutting an elk. Sometimes, when making the incision, it didn't go quite right. And this guy who would then be defiled would need to go and, and do the cleansing acts that the, that the scriptures, um, that the law stipulated for him so that he could return and begin sacrificing on behalf of the people to God. And God says, you know what? Remember last week when we read, I wish somebody would shut the doors of the temple instead of you doing your half-hearted religion? This week, there's another word to the priest. It's like, if you don't get the point of doing this wholeheartedly, I tell you what, you'll wish we had chained the doors shut, because I'll mash your face in it. It's him saying, if, you are, if you're going to go ahead with defiling me, with defiling the place, the special place where I promise to meet you, I will defile the defilers. Is this really the relationship that you want with God, pastors, priests? He goes on to talk about this covenant between the Levites. You may not know who the Levites are. They're the, the tribe from which the priests came. And he says there's this relationship with the Levites that, that was a, a covenant. So let me, let, me, let me kind of trace it out for you. If you look at the, there's a big circle here. And this big circle is the people of God. Okay? Big circle, people of God. In the Old Testament, that's defined as nation of Israel. Part of the people of God was one tribe, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The, this tribe was, was the uh, children of a man named Levi, one of Israel's children, one of Jacob's children. The tribe of Levi was singled out to be the people who did two things. Number one, a bunch of them were laborers who kind of just took care of the temple or the tabernacle and all of the, the religious stuff. And then there were a couple of families within the tribe of Levi who were designated as priests. So we had some some priests who did the sacrifice stuff, and we had some other religious workers, the rest of the Levites. Some of the Levites were musicians. There were were hundreds, at one point thousands of them that that did their work in the temple. So we've got the big circle, the people of God, Israel. The, The smaller circle is the Levites, and the smaller circle yet within them, the priests. And we've got this God who says, I will have an an exclusive relationship with Israel, hoping one day to turn it inclusive, but exclusive for now in the Old Testament, so that everybody in the world can see that when you are connected with the God, the Lord of heaven's armies, it's a good life. And you experience real life and real peace. And within that group, the people of God were the Levites who were supposed to be showing the other 11 tribes the way to connect with God. And among the Levites, this this family of priests whose whole life was to be dedicated to doing this right so that people don't misunderstand or 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 fail to understand altogether how it is that you can approach the God, the Lord of heaven's armies and have a relationship with him that is characterized by love and peace. you've probably noticed that the whole world didn't get the message, right? Have you noticed that the whole world hasn't turned to God? The Israel experiment didn't go real well. If you've read the Old Testament, you know that there was great corruption among the Levites and the priests. So that at one point, we're reading stories about about them stealing food from widows and, and sexual misconduct at the altar itself. And in today's church, we we have to hear about the very same things. You read the news, right? Sexual misconduct among the, the pastorate. Thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands now we're told of people. Who came to the altar? They came to worship. They came to seek God. And have been victimized by the very people who are supposed to show them how to connect with Him, the one who gives them life and peace. And some of them will never find their way back to life and peace. The priests have failed the people. So God says, you know, there was supposed to be this sacred drama where the the priests, in these rituals, acted out an approach to a holy God. And since since you didn't do the drama, I'm going to get all dramatic and help the people understand that if you thought the priest stood for God when he did all the wrong stuff, to the priest. And he said it forcefully enough that we would get the point. I'll smear the manure, the defiled stuff, on you and then forget, forget the guts. I'm throwing you out on the manure pile. Oh yeah. And guess what? I'll carry it on for another generation or two for your kids. I can't speak for everybody else. But I want to tell you that there's one pastor shaking in his boots this morning about continuing to be a priest. And I want to tell you as faithfully as I know how, how to make an approach to a God who offers a covenant of life, and peace, and I've got to do it in about two minutes. When you get into a uh, verse, I don't oh, know, I don't remember what verse it is. Um, somewhere in that passage we just read, okay? He talks about, depending on the translation that you're reading, it'll use either the words fear or reverence. And we don't like to use the word fear. And I think here's one of the failing of the priests, is that we've t- decided to take the word fear, the phrase fear of God, and we, don't, we, we know how, how people react negatively to the idea of being afraid of God, and we want people to feel cozy with God. And so we've, we've changed that word, uh, substituted the word reverence. And, I don't, and it's two different words, and they, they don't mean the same thing. They are not synonyms, okay? Uh, I want to go on the record this morning as saying the, the Hebrew word for fear means be afraid. The Greek word for fear means be afraid, and the English word fear means be afraid. It means to recognize that there is a power greater than you that can overcome you in a moment's notice, and it should check your heart and make you tremble for a moment what you do from that place of recognition of the almighty strength and holiness of God is completely up to you. And it can either continue to inspire fear and trembling or fear and loathing or in the next second, you can catch a glimpse of the love and the goodness of God that talks you into doing something crazy. And it's cozying up to the one who could snuff your life out like that. And get this. The, words, the word fear, in the, the, its Hebrew use relative to this passage, doesn't mean an emotion. Okay? It doesn't even mean a motive of any kind. This is an action verb. In other words, um, the, the, the call isn't for us priests and any of you who dare to follow our instructions to have feelings about how tough God is. It isn't even about the, the shaking in our shoes. No, this is, uh, it's not about an, an attitude in our hearts even, it's an action verb which means because we recognize something, we then have to take a specific action and do something that demonstrates the reverence that we talked about last week. And so I'm going to tell you, I haven't wrestled with this all week long, I have arrived at a conclusion that I don't think I can be moved from. And it's this. That when the scriptures call upon us to fear the Lord, they're not telling us to have an attitude, they're not telling us to, uh, to wake up our emotions, it's telling us do something that demonstrates reverence, and the word for that is worship. Come before God and do something in his presence that demonstrates that we recognize who he is, holy, powerful, the author of life, and the ender of it, and rightly so. You know what those priests were supposed to be doing? Leading worship. Just having people come before God reverently, but come before him. See, reverence, we said last week, uh, or honor last week, we said, starts in the heart but can't end there. It's only respect if it's just this thing you feel. It turns into honor when you do something about it. Fear begins in the heart, cannot stay there. It only really is fear in the biblical sense if you do something about it. It means that you put yourself before God regularly. So I'm going to say this thing, okay? I'm going to t- can I just tell you this morning what I think the real world application of that is? The church of Jesus Christ in America has to stop skipping Church. And telling ourselves the sweet little lie that I can worship him wherever I go. He deserves for me to stop everything else once a week and not offer him my private praises. He deserves for my lips to praise him while other people are listening. He deserves for people to see me bowing in his presence and looking undignified. It's a good uh, we, we put these altars at the front, not at the back for a reason. So that when people come and humble themselves, it's an undignified thing. You're pointing your rear end right at the whole church. Your shirt slips up, we see whatever we see. You might break into some sort of emotion while you're there, and the church can see your shoulders shaking as you either laugh or sob in his presence. And God deserves it. I may say thank you when I'm on the river or in the mountains, but that doesn't deserve the same The same word as worship and fear of God. The word worship, the word fear is the word worship. It is. It's time for the people of God, for the priests of God to tell the people of God all the sweet little lies that we've told um, about church being optional those were lies. We just hope you'd like us. Saying you can, worship, you can worship God anywhere, that was a lie. You can have your personal devotional moment with him, but worship, that word in the Old Testament is always used as a group activity, always. And you worship as part of the people of God gathered with people of God. I'm out of time I've got, uh, we, God and I are going to have to work on this. Tell you what, I won't, I won't um, inflict upon you next week my continued devotional application of this part of chapter two. But I, but I promise you that I will continue. I will commit myself to seeking out every application that the Spirit will point out to me about how I am to do what I do. As you come this morning, um, Pastor Bill's going to be over here and Pastor Blake will be over here with the, with the communion elements. Uh, Pastor Kaylee's available for anybody who needs gluten-free elements. If you'll just wave at her, she'll bring them to you. Worship team's going to come. We're going we're gonna to sing a song that you don't know yet, but that I hope you'll sing with us eventually. I want to invite you to come and worship God. To take in your hands the elements that represent the murder of the Messiah and choke them down. And as you do, realize whatever part you played in that. Ask for and receive forgiveness and grace. And then just take whatever posture you need to before a God who tears priests apart if they've got it coming. Who gave his own son to be tortured to death because of his preferential love for the people who had been led astray by the priests. Jesus said if you take these elements, the symbols of his body and his blood, and ingest them, you will also find his life in you. It's a mystery. I can't tell you how it works. But if you will come in faith today before the Holy God, on the merits of the body and the blood of Jesus. You will receive his life and his peace. And I think your hearts and your bodies will know how to respond to that. Lord, I think, uh, I, think I earned that F in preaching today. But your word says what it says and I've had to just humble myself and Take it. Forgive me. Help me. Teach me. And use me. And these brothers and sisters of mine, you're going to have to be the one who leads them in the way everlasting. So Spirit, speak to them as we come before you to worship you as you deserve.